You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, good to see you today. Thank you for being here. Uh, If it's any consolation uh, for you to come to the early service, it was not any less crowded, okay? Um, uh, The room was pretty well packed at that time. In fact, this is uh, likely the last time that we will have only two services on an Easter Sunday Uh, at least for the foreseeable future, and uh, that's okay, Uh, but we're delighted that you're here. Uh, My Facebook memories told me this last week that it was around this time, uh, 10 years ago, that Christy and I were actually in Israel. Um, In 2013, Easter came early. Easter was at the end of March, actually, and so it was just shortly after that uh, that we got the opportunity to spend 10 days in the Holy Land, and um, I can remember saying on the bus one day as we were touring the different sites Uh, Many of us were church leaders, pastors, that kind of thing. I said, you know what? If a guy can't preach or get fired up to preach on a resurrection Sunday, then he should probably go clean swimming pools or something uh, because um, it's a big day. Um, In fact, you may have heard uh, resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday likened to Super Bowl Sunday. It's Christianity's Super Bowl Sunday. And I understand the sentiment behind that because of all the hoopla and all the money that's spent on Super Bowl Sunday and uh, everybody's attention is turned toward uh, that particular game and so forth, but it's really not a very good comparison Uh, because the truth is many of you would be hard-pressed right now to name the two teams that played in this year's Super Bowl, right? Um, I I, I couldn't tell you for sure. I mean, I have to think about it for a minute, and so uh, hopefully uh, this day and what we're going to look at today in God's Word together I will stay with you uh, for much longer than a few weeks or even months, and I hope that you find um, a great deal of meaning from God's Word today. I realize that some of you are here this morning. Maybe, uh, as Jay said earlier, you are a bit skeptical. Uh, Maybe when you think about uh, the resurrection, uh, you think of it as maybe a myth. Uh, Maybe you think of it as some kind of a Christian fairy tale. Um, Maybe, yeah, maybe you would maybe even think of it as a legend that's kind of just been passed down from generation to generation, uh, but it is the centerpiece of our Christian faith. Um, there is not a more important subject uh, that we could look at. In fact, this is not the only Sunday out of the year that we talk about the resurrection. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that we serve a living Savior uh, that makes it possible for us to gather every Lord's Day, and so it's cr- critically important to us. Uh, I was looking back over my sermon files for now, I guess, coming on 30 years, uh, I've had the privilege of getting up on an Easter Sunday and preaching God's Word, proclaiming God's Word. And I wasn't looking for a sermon. I wasn't looking for something I could just reheat. Um, I was actually looking for the themes uh, that I had been driven to uh, and the texts that I had been driven to. Many times we go to the Gospels naturally, or we'll go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. That's known as the resurrection chapter. And uh, and what I noticed uh, that really surprised me, quite frankly, was that I had never preached an Easter Sunday sermon from Romans chapter 8. Uh, and so that's where we're going to be this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd like for you to join me there. Romans chapter 8. Uh, we have been for a number of weeks now in a Sunday morning sermon series in the Gospel of John, and we'll return to that, Lord willing, next week. But today, we're going to turn our attention to uh, the Apostle Paul, his writing to the church at Rome. 
And as you're finding your way there, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's fine. If you would like to have a copy of God's Word, we would love to give you one. Uh, but you'll find that the text will be up on the screen as well. But one of the great differences between the first Easter and our Easter today is that today, Easter has become a time when we as Christians at least appear to have everything together. I mean, let's be honest. Some of y'all look a little more put together than you normally do this morning, right? I mean, I've even got a jacket on. Somebody said to me out here eating donuts, I didn't know you owned one of those. Well, I do. Uh, I even have on some deodorant today, all right? So it's a big day, right? <laughs> I, I love it. I, I love to see the new clothes and the pretty dresses on the girls and the bow ties on the boys and all those things, and uh, it, it, it's great. But what you need to know is that uh, while that is very much a part of our church culture uh, here in America, it is extra special. Uh, we do wear new clothes. We get our family photos taken. We want this service to go really well because it's Easter after all. And again, that's totally fine. But we should realize that the first Easter was nothing like this. In fact, the first Easter was almost the exact opposite. And Mark's gospel, more than any other, I think, gives us this perspective. This is how Mark describes the first Easter morning in his gospel. He says that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went, go to the tomb where Jesus was buried, and they discover that the tomb is empty. And then an angel tells them that Jesus has risen, and he's not here. And then Mark ends it like this. In Mark 16, verse 8, it says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So Jesus has risen from the dead, just like he said he would. And we should celebrate. <laughs> That's what we should do. But the first disciples, at first, were confused. They were seized uh, by trembling and astonishment, the text says. They didn't know what to do. They were astounded. And this is what gets us to the great question of the resurrection. You see, the great question of the resurrection, in my mind, is not whether it really happened. Now, I've preached some, some Easter morning messages that were more apologetic in nature, looking at some of the, the clear evidences from God's word uh, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's my feelings, my belief, and I've done the research, uh, not as well as others necessarily, but to, is that, that that evidence is overwhelming. So that's not the question today. That's not really the focus of this morning's message. Instead, the great question of the resurrection is now what? Now what? Now that Jesus has risen, now that the tomb is empty, what does that mean for us? What do we do with that? How does this make things different? We were just singing about that today. We weren't just singing some historical facts, singing historical information. We were singing about how the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts who we are today and how we relate to, to, to God and how we view the world in which we live. How are things different? That's the great question of the resurrection. And the rest of the New Testament is written so, to basically give us the answer to that. What does it matter? Now what? And it can be summed up, I believe, in one word. If there was any theme that, that, that was in virtually every Easter message that I've preached over the years, it was the theme of hope. The theme of hope. 
the good news of Jesus Christ, what we call the gospel, which literally means good news, is a gospel of hope. And so just in terms of how we think about the resurrection, I want to make sure that we get the order right. Okay, the resurrection of Jesus is not the end of Christianity. Now, certainly Satan and his minions thought with the day that Christ died on the cross that it was done, finished, right? Jesus, in fact, himself said it is finished, but he meant something completely different. Something completely different. No, in fact, the resurrection really is just the beginning. It's not the great climax of the story. In some ways, it's the start. It's the new thing. It's like a new creation. And what it does is it gives us hope. That's what the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I hope that you hear those words this morning. It's not the end. Now that Jesus is raised, we don't wipe our hands like we're all done as we watch Jesus walk off into the sunset. No, we're just getting started. The resurrection has brought something new for us, and this new thing is called a living hope. We now have, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, living hope. Now what does that mean? That's what we're going to look at today. So I do want us to turn our attention to Romans chapter 8. And when it comes to hope, this chapter is arguably the greatest of all time. Romans chapter 8 is the most important chapter in the most important book when it comes to a Christian theology of hope. And this morning, there are five things that we learn. So this is a five-point sermon, okay? I know lunch is coming. I know some of you are already hungry, but it's Easter, Okay. Uh, now, we're not going to be here any longer than we might normally be, uh, but I do want us to unpack five truths from Romans chapter 8 on the meaning of hope. Number one, hope is about the future. Hope is about the future. I want us to start basic. I think it's important that we, that we understand the complexities uh, uh, of the gospel itself and all those things. We try to understand it as best we can. I'm, I'm a bottom shelf kind of guy. And so before we can understand hope, we have to have some idea of what we mean by that word. What is hope? Paul tells us what he means by hope. If you look at verse number 24, and we're actually going to uh, come back to verse number 24 in just a few moments. But here's what he says in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? It'd be a lot like when I was a kid, and I was looking forward to maybe one Saturday, our family going to Six Flags over Texas. You know, I, I, you wouldn't find me saying as we were walking into the park, I hope we get to go to Six Flags today. It'd be weird to say that because, like, we're here, right? We are at Six Flags. So hope is very much about the future. So very simply here, Paul, Paul, Paul defines hope by telling us what it is not. Hope can't be seen. If you hope in something you see, that's not hope. So hope then has to do with the future. It means to have a confident expectation of what is to come. That's what the original Greek word means, actually. That's how we use it today. Hope is about the future. It is a resolve, a conviction uh, that we have about something that we've not yet seen, but believe that we will see. You might be wondering now, well, how is that different from faith? 
hope and faith sound the same. They seem very similar, uh, almost, like, almost like synonyms, but they're different. And the difference is nuanced, but it's really, really important. It's that hope is the expectation of those things that, faith, uh, that, that, that our faith has believed to be true. John Calvin said it this way. He said, thus, faith believes God to be true. Hope awaits the time when this truth shall be manifested. Faith believes that he is our father. Hope anticipates that he will ever show himself to be a father toward us. Faith believes that eternal life has been given to us. Hope anticipates that it will at some time be revealed. Faith is the foundation upon which hope rests. Hope nourishes and sustains faith. So here, here is, hope is this expectation of things that faith has believed to be true. So faith considers something true of God now, and whenever that truth crosses the line into waiting and looking for the future, it becomes hope. It's what theologians many times call the tension between the already but the not yet. If you're here this morning and you've turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, God's word declares that you are fully free, fully forgiven. And so th- there's this sense in which you, you, are, you are complete in Christ, Right? So there's what we call justification. That's that moment when you're made just as if you've never sinned. Your sins are wiped away, past, present, and future. And so that's, that, that's the already. But the not yet, there's this aspect of our salvation that we call glorification. And as good as you are looking today, I don't think any of you are glorified yet. Okay? And so there's that, 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 there's that tension It's been said that faith is the foundation of hope. Hope grows on faith, but then hope invigorates faith. So we believe Jesus cares about this world. That's faith. And one day, Jesus is going to make all things new. That's hope. So do you see how that hope impacts and mobilizes our faith? It means that we have to have hope. cannot live without it. Number two this morning, hope is about the future, but number two, hope is received, not invented. Most everybody would say that hope is important. Most would agree that hope is a good thing to have. In fact, some of the saddest words I believe that you find in Scripture uh, come uh, shortly after the death of Jesus and really after his resurrection. These two disciples, uh, they're walking on this road to Emmaus. Some of you have done a a walk to Emmaus. And if you know the narrative there in the Gospels, it tells us that Jesus came up alongside them, but they didn't realize who he was. Their eyes weren't yet open to who he was. I suspect that they were kind of downtrodden. They were saddened. Some of the saddest words in Scripture come in that narrative, in that conversation between these two disciples and Jesus walking on this road to Emmaus. They say this. They say, we had hoped that he was the one to deliver us. See, they had followed Jesus up to the the point of death, right? And so they assumed that because he died, was placed in a tomb, that was the end of the story. And so in in their mind, in that moment, hope was gone. Things were hopeless. And maybe you felt that way. Maybe you walked into the room today feeling a little hopeless because of a certain situation in your life. Maybe it's associated with a relationship issue or a medical diagnosis or whatever. There's, There's nothing worse than having a sense of hopelessness. There is no hope. Those are hard words to to try to verbalize or to say, and maybe you've experienced that. Some people would maybe say that hope is a is a placebo. 
But it's basically just the power of positive thinking. And that just as long as we're wishing upon a star, it doesn't matter which star it is. It's all the same. There's no difference. That's the way some will talk about hope. But of course, that's not the way that Scripture talks about hope. as just some kind of pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking. In the Bible, hope is not something that we can just make up. But it has to do with who we are. Our very identity as followers of Jesus Christ, because we would say it this way, hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. And so if you are, in fact, a follower of Jesus Christ, hope is very much a part of your identity as a follower of him. That's one of the first things we learn here in Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul is talking about identity here. And so if you would, look at Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick it up in verse number 8 and, uh, and read through verse 17. Uh, as we consider this, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life because of right, the, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the key verse, the key passage there really is verse number 15. We have received the spirit of adoption. A lot of people mistakenly think that our Christian identity is something that we achieve. If I can just be good enough, if I can do more good things than bad things, I will achieve, I will achieve something in Christ. I will achieve favor with God. It's not something you achieve, it's something you receive by faith in Jesus Christ. So this metaphor of adoption is super helpful because it makes clear to us that this is God's work, not ours. It's God's work. We cannot make ourselves adopted. Adoption is something that happens to us, and until God moves in action, we are helpless and left to ourselves. It has to be God who makes us his children. So think about what God has done. As we contemplate the gospel today, see, the Bible says that we were orphans. We just sang about that a moment ago. We were left to ourselves, stuck on ourselves, you might say, far from God, without hope, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. But then God, rich in mercy, comes to us with the good news of Jesus Christ. We hear the truth that Jesus died for us. He took our sins upon himself, and he bore the wrath that we deserve, and he gives us his righteousness. It's what we call the, the great exchange of the gospel. He comes to take our sin upon himself so that we can then receive his righteousness. And then God gives us his spirit to prove it. 
So if you're a Christian, you heard the good news of the gospel. You believed the good news. God dropped the gavel, as it were, and said about you, my child, my son, my daughter. You see, the gospel is that Jesus takes away everything, took away everything that keeps us from God in order to give us everything that brings us to God. And then God gives us his spirit to prove it. The spirit now bears witness with our spirit, according to what Paul's writing here, that we are children of God. And then listen, listen for the future here. And if we're children, then we're heirs, it says. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, according to verse 17. To be an heir means that you have a future. It means you have a future. We are heirs of God. God has a future for us, which means we have hope. We have hope. So it goes like this. We have hope because God has a future for us, because we are his heirs, because we are his children, because we have received his adoption. Hope is received, not invented, not achieved, and you can receive it right now by faith. You can. As you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But number three, you've got to understand this. Hope, biblical hope, puts us in contradiction with the world. So we have to talk about suffering. If you were paying attention, as I read uh, verse number 17 there a moment ago, and you know that we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So first, as a Christian, we need to know that when we suffer, we suffer with him. That's part of what it means to be united to Jesus by faith. Our lives are bound up in his life, and so when we suffer, we don't suffer alone. That may seem like we do sometimes, but we suffer with him, and that suffering is pretty much, when you think about it, is life in this world. This life is full of trouble. I'm not trying to ruin your Easter Sunday, okay? I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer this morning. I know it's Easter, and it's an exciting time. But listen, this world is dark, and life is hard, and we sometimes suffer. Christians are diagnosed with cancer just like everybody else. Christians die of heart attacks just like everybody else. Let's be honest. The world is turbulent. The world is full of chaos. It's not our friend. Suffering is a reality here, and to the extent that we understand the future that God has for us, then we will find ourselves often disgusted by the current darkness, because it can be dark here. That's why scripture says, can light have fellowship with darkness? And that's why we have to remember the, the, the comparison. That's why Paul writes in verse number 18, he says, therefore, I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so we're going we're gonna to think rightly about the sufferings of the present as we, as, as we know about the glory of the future. And it's not even worth comparing. Not even worth comparing. Now let's look at verses 19 through 23. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves 
We have the, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so what is the glory of our future? It's our transformation. Now look at verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us. This is it. It's in this waiting. It's in this groaning. It's in this already but not yet. That's the pain of this life. It's that we are not yet who we will be by the grace of God. This world is not yet what it will be. And, and, and all of that is in the future, which means that current reality stands against us. If we know how different our future is from what the world is now, it means we cannot live in harmony with this world. Hope forbids harmony with a broken world. That's why hope is a resistance movement. If we know the future that is ours in Jesus Christ, if we know what God has promised, then we can't be okay with the darkness uh, of this world now. Let's talk for a moment about our American despair. There was a Time Magazine um, issue, actually, an entire issue several years ago that was all about the opioid problem in America. It was basically centered around one photographer's work. And what this guy did was he went to different places all over the country uh, to document this crisis that we're going through as a nation. And it really is a crisis. In fact, every year in America, over 64,000 people die from drug overdose. So here we are in 2023. You think about this. Uh, people are not living as long as they used to. With all of the advances in science and technology and medicine, people today are dying sooner, and it's many times by their own hands. So as I'm, I was looking through this particular issue of Time Magazine, it was disturbing to me. And I can remember just a, a lump welling up in my throat because this whole crisis really is a crisis of despair, which is the opposite of hope, right? It's been said that the two great enemies of hope are actually presumption and despair. When it comes to presumption, presumption, listen to this, is the fabricated fulfillment of God's promises now by our own hands. Presumption is the fabricated fulfillment of God's promises now by our own hands. Presumption is when we try to make our own heaven out of this world. Now I realize you may be in certain settings, certain places, and you look out over this beautiful view, maybe from a mountaintop in the Colorado Rockies, and you say, this is like heaven on earth. I've used those words before. <laughs> but trust me, it's not heaven. It's not. So presumption is when we try to make our own heaven out of this world. And there are people in this, on this incredible treadmill of humanity trying to make heaven out of this world. Searching for it in all kinds of stuff, all kinds of places. It's precisely what the prosperity gospel is. Which is the lie that God wants everybody to be healthy and wealthy now. And that if we just pray hard enough, we all would be. That's toxic. And it's the enemy to Christian hope. It's anti-gospel actually. The other enemy is despair. 
Despair is when we consider the promises of God and we believe that he will not fulfill them. So despair is to believe that God will not do what he has said. And therefore we have no future. And if we have no future, then everything is bleached of meaning. Life becomes nothing. And when life is nothing, then all you want to do is escape. And so you give yourself over uh, to whatever it is that gets your dopamine uh, levels just a bit higher. And right now in our nation, that's why we have this opioid crisis. It's because we have a despair epidemic. And it's been highlighted coming out of COVID over these last two or three years. People are suffering from anxiety and despair and all these things in ways that, that we never have really seen before. You see, without hope for the future, this is all misery. It's all misery. That's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, then we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if our hope is only limited to this world, to the here and now, what a pity. What a pity. There has to be a tomorrow if today is going to matter. We must have a future. We do have a future. That's what we're waiting for. But the waiting is not easy. And so number four, it means hope requires us to need help. It requires us to need help. Look at verses 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined... He also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we can't live without hope, and that means we can't live without the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the minister of hope. We need him. Notice what he does. Don't know how to pray? You ever been at that place? It's like, I know I should pray, I know I need, but I just don't know how to put it into words. I find myself stammering over my thoughts and, and stumbling over my thoughts, and I just can't, but, but we don't know what to pray. A lot of times we're just stuck. You ever been there? Well, you're stuck in that tension, in the waiting, and that's when the Spirit prays for us. And here's how that goes. God, he who searches hearts, God, he who knows the way the Spirit thinks because the Spirit thinks what he thinks, and the Spirit prays for us according to that. That's verse number 27. And so there's this mysterious collaboration happening in the Trinity, the triune God, that, that we are right in the middle of it. And the goal ultimately is God's glory and our good. So what is God's will? Verse 28 says, it's our good. It's all things working together for our good. And what is our good? Now don't make the mistake of thinking when you read that, that that means God wants us to have a bigger bank account. He wants us to be healthy all the time. He wants to, no, 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 no. It's being conformed to the image of Jesus. <laughs> it's being conformed to the image of Jesus. And that is an absolute guarantee here. 
This is part of God's saving work that stretches back from eternity past through the present and into the future. So look, when it comes to God's work in our lives, some of it we did not see. Some of it we have seen. And some of it, by the grace of God, we will see. You've been called, he says. You've been justified. And, cons- and so consider it as good as done. You will be glorified. That's that already, but not yet that I talked about earlier. You will be conformed to the image of Jesus. You absolutely will. Christian, that is your future, and that changes us now. That's number five. Hope changes us now. Look at verses 31 through 39, and we'll finish up. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring us, uh, bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, notice notice the words of certainty that Paul uses here. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. (laughs) I love Paul's question in verse number 31. He has just explained for us Christian hope. He has laid out for us what our future is because of Jesus, and then he says... What does this mean? What does this mean? What does it mean for now? What difference does it make now? In April of 2023, it makes us invincible. It makes us invincible. And to be honest, I blush a little bit by saying that, but it's what Paul says. Since God is for us, nothing formed against us can succeed. And here's his logic. This is gospel logic. In the gospel, in the cross, in the resurrection of Jesus, God has given us the greatest gift of all. And it's so great that everything else in comparison is small beans for God to do. So then the cross and the resurrection of Jesus create for us a universe of glorious possibility. If God has given Jesus for us, crucified, risen for us, then what can he not do? What would he not give us? He's going to give you all things. He's going to give you all things ultimately for his glory and our good, for your joy, your conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. This is where a lot of people become disillusioned because they believe, according to how they view God, the box in which they've placed God, that he should somehow be consumed with our happiness here on this earth. That God just should be consumed with me getting more money and and, and experiencing the things in this earth that will make me happy. He's most concerned with you and I becoming like Jesus. And sometimes that involves some really amazing experiences. 
in which we find great joy. Sometimes, however, that involves some suffering. So because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, because of Easter, we have hope. That's what we celebrate today. And Paul's point here is to strengthen our hope by telling us that it can never be taken away. God is the judge over all, and he has justified you. Because Jesus was condemned, you are not condemned. You are forgiven and righteous. You are helped and prayed for. You are forever united to the love of God, which means that everything in this world, everything in your life that opposes God's love for you will fail. And that is where we need to feel it today. It's where our hope for the future peels back into our present, into our now, and it changes us. You may be in the room this morning, and you may be right in the smack dab in the middle of a really dark season. You may be looking in the mirror some days and going, can I go on? Can I make it to, not, not, not the next year, the next month. You, you're wondering, can I make it to the next day? <laughs> well, since God is for us, God is for us. No person, no thing, nowhere can overcome us. Your suffering will not destroy you. You may think it will. It feels like it will, but it will not. It cannot destroy you. God will do what he has promised. Hope is here. Hope is here. He is risen. This is your hope, and it's a hope that will never die. That's why it's called a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If together we could bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment this morning. I know that for the 300-some people that are here this morning, we are all in different places in our journey. As I said earlier, there may be some of you today who come in as a skeptic. You have more doubt about the Christian faith than anything else. There may be others who are disillusioned. God isn't performing for you the way that you think he should. And maybe some here today who have grown complacent. You could point to a time in your life, maybe even years ago, when you turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, but that relationship for you has grown stagnant. You've left your first love. So we're in a lot of different places spiritually. Some of you, by the grace of God, are in a place that you've never been before. And I don't mean physically here in the room, although that may be true for you. You've only recently come to understand the amazing truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you've embraced the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And you're only now beginning to grow in your relationship with him. You're a spiritual toddler. That's amazing. But let me simplify this for us this morning. 
all of us, regardless of where you are, we all fall into one of two categories this morning. Either you are in Christ or you are not. You see, according to Scripture, you can't kind of be in Christ. You are either in Christ or you are not. Scripture would tell us either you're in Christ or you are in Adam. You've been born physically, and that's, that's clearly evident by the fact that you are here living and breathing. But you are not yet in Christ. You've not yet been made alive spiritually because you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ. You know about Jesus the idea of Jesus, even the idea of a substitutionary death, a cruel death on a cross, perhaps even a resurrection, has an appeal to you. And so you would give it some mental assent. You would say, that's great. But really in the back of your mind, it's more, it's more out there. So today I would invite you to turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ. So that you can know with certainty as you leave this place of worship today that you are in Christ. Your identity is received, not achieved. So if you're in the midst of this incredible exercise in futility where you are trying somehow, some way to reform yourself, to become good enough, to do more good than bad... It's time for you to surrender. It's time for you to surrender in faith. Because the truth is, even on your best day, you cannot be good enough. And I can't either. I would love to share with you from God's word. Love to have a conversation, maybe over a cup of coffee this next week. About how you can know that your sins are forgiven and that heaven will someday be your home. And that you're in a right relationship with God, what scripture calls reconciled to holy God. That is only through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the hope that it is ours in Christ Jesus and in Christ alone. If there's anyone here today that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, by the power of your word, they be drawn to you today. They can leave here today knowing what it is to be in Christ. We love you and we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.